and welcome to the Destiny Prague podcast. Our heart is to see people empowered by the love of Jesus and activated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Word of God is still relevant today, and we trust that this message will bless you, challenge you, and fill your heart and mind with the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ. We believe that God has a plan for your life, and we want to journey a road of discipleship with you as you discover who He has called you to be. If you'd like to connect with us, check out our website at destinychurch.cz. Let's go. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. We always get excited and expectant to be in the house of God because this is where miracles happen. Um, he means business with these people. And we've been talking about an encounter with Jesus. And just in our heart is heavy just for you to experience and to have a fresh encounter or to encounter him. And we've been looking at various people across the Gospels of where Jesus encountered them and just looking at what happened in those exchanges because there's a lot of powerful elements that we can learn. And I had originally prepared to teach this morning on Saul that becomes Paul. For those of you that don't know that, there's a couple of Saul's in the Bible. There's one in the Old Testament. There's definitely one in the New Testament. Uh, Most of you might know him as Paul, the Apostle. And I'm going to touch on, I'm not preaching on this today, but I just felt it was special. Before Paul, the greatest apostle probably of all times, becomes Paul, he was Saul. Right? And Saul was a very horrible man. He murdered most of the Christians in the early days. He persecuted them in a horrible way. In fact, he went to the council of the day and he said, I want a decree to go into Jerusalem and imprison any single person, and the word of God says, including women, which, by the way, weren't really teaching at that stage, but he just wanted to lock up anybody that explored Christianity. And for those of you maybe that have never thought through this before, Saul never actually physically met Jesus, unlike the rest of the apostles or disciples. And I wanted to caveat, I'll come back to that in a moment. I wanted to touch on this because sometimes we look at the apostles in the Bible and the disciples and we think to ourselves, well, they spent time with him. They were physically in his presence. They got to light a fire on the beach with him, right? They got to do the crazy things with Jesus. Yet the most impressive apostle in the New Testament and probably the reason that most of us are sitting here today never actually physically met Jesus In fact, he was persecuting the very church in that time. And only, I think, in Acts 9, roughly, do you see um, Saul have an encounter on the road to Damascus where Jesus comes to him and says, why are you persecuting my church? And this got me thinking heavily this week. Because we sit here, what, 2,000-odd years later, and we think to ourselves, ah, but you know, if I could just have an encounter, if I had just known him face-to-face, If I just met him in person, let me tell you something. The encounter that Saul had on that road to Damascus is the same way that he encounters people in this very day and age. Sorry. He did it then. He can do it now. He's still doing it. There is no exception for any of you. He's desperate to meet with you. He pursues us. And you'll see, just like Jessica said, we were talking about it this morning going, why did Jesus encounter some 
And there was healing and miracles and restoration. Yet he encountered others, such as the religious rulers, the Pharisees, and nothing changed in their life. And it got us thinking. And she said it this morning. It's about how we come to him sometimes. I think sometimes we come to him like a vending machine. Consumer Christianity. Oh, Lord, I need a new job. Sorry, I haven't spoken to you in six weeks. But hey, you know, this job's getting a bit old now. They didn't pay me my incentives, so I think I'm going to call in your name and see what happens. We treat God like this, which is sometimes why it's so hard for us to come into a room like this and sing, God, you're so good, for 10 minutes, because we get bored. Just me? Do we all like singing stuff on repeat? You do? George, do. George loves it. I don't, personally. I think it's kind of weird. But when I sing about his goodness in my life, it grips my heart. Amen? And I can't help but sing that on repeat because I'm convinced about his goodness. I hope that shakes you up this morning. Know what you're singing when you sing it. So we've just been looking at people that encounter Jesus. And you can go read in Acts about Saul encountering Paul. It's really, really special. But today we're going to be in John 8. I thought I'd keep it um, higher grade for us this morning. It's cold outside. Um, so we're going to be looking at the woman um, that was brought in front of Jesus that was caught in adultery. Ooh, adultery. Typical Donovan. Last time I preached, I spoke on the demon-possessed man. You see a trend here? I like to pick out the stuff that people don't want to talk about. Demon possession, adultery, all the good stuff. But it doesn't matter to Jesus, because it doesn't matter what you come to him with. And we're going to look at a little bit how he encountered this particular woman and how he dealt with the situation, because it's actually quite interesting. And for those of you that may be in the business realm, if you've ever heard of a, a term called conflict management or conflict resolution, Ben, management accounting, when those numbers don't balance, just kidding, when you're dealing with people this, for me, is like the perfect chapter on how to teach someone on conflict resolution and management, because Jesus was stuck at a very difficult place. In fact, this passage says that they were trying to catch Jesus out. They were trying to trip him up. And I love this because it shows me a man that was more than just feelings. It shows me a very intelligent God, actually. I look at this passage and I just get excited. I'm like, I want to lead like that in the workplace. I want to deal with situations like that in the workplace, but before I get there, because the reason I started talking about Paul is because I wanted to read the scripture. Philippians 3 verse 7 to 8. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. And he's, Saul becomes Paul, as we said, and you need to know as a, as a Jewish individual, you would have grown up studying um, what they called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, basically. And he knew the Bible. He had knowledge of the scriptures at that stage. And even with all that knowledge, he was still persecuting. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. His life changes forever. He hangs out with the disciples. They were terrified of him, of course, because he was persecuting them. In the previous chapters. And then you flip through history a little bit, and you get to Paul radically saved, writing to the Philippians, and he says this, and I wanted to put this up front this morning because I believe this is going to shake something off of all of you today. 
and I hadn't prepared it until we were in the prayer room. But Paul says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That's in the NIV version. That's not the hip street Bible version. That's the NIV. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Here is a man with power and authority that has a radical encounter with God, that has all the knowledge of the scriptures at the time. But he goes throughout history and he's now radically changed and he's declaring the gospel and the goodness of Christ Jesus. And he says, I count all that knowledge that I had as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. You see, one encounter, one encounter with Christ Jesus can change everything. I don't care if you've been in church 40 years, 20 years, 15 years, 5 years, 6 minutes. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul, the greatest apostle, is telling us, and I'm not saying knowledge is wrong. Please go study the word. Get it into your heart. Read it backwards and forwards. Read it over and over again. It's alive. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can take something from that scripture in Philippians so, Father, we just pray over that scripture this morning. And I just feel for everyone that's in the room that says, I know. I've been doing church all my life. I'm a missionary. I'm a whatever. Father, it doesn't matter. What matters is the relationship we have with Jesus. And, Father, I just pray for everyone that hears this word this morning, Lord, that says, man, I need more. I just don't want to read and understand, but I want to know him. Father, I just pray by the power of your spirit that you encounter your people today, tomorrow, tonight, this week. Reveal yourself afresh to them. Reveal your true nature to them, your character, Father. Because when we get to know you, when that relationship happens, when that exchange happens, Father, something changes. We move from knowledge. We move from knowledge to relationship with you. And Father, anybody that meets you is changed or challenged, propelled in a different direction. And Father, we thank you that your word says that you're constantly transforming us into your likeness. So Father, reveal yourself afresh to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, we looked at the demon-possessed man. Um, I preached on that. We saw this man possessed. They tried to bind him with chains, shackles, etc. Eventually, he was caught up in the caves, screaming, cutting himself. Jesus lands on the shore after trying to get away from the people. He crosses the Lake of Galilee. And as he sets foot on the shore, this man that had been chained up for so long runs to him. And we know the story. He falls at Jesus' feet. Jesus sets that man free that day. That man desperately wants to remain in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus says, sorry, bud. And he turns him back to the very people that tried to bind him in chains. And it says that he goes to tell them about the goodness of God to ten cities. Jessica spoke last week about Zacchaeus, little man, roughly Jessica's height. 
give or take a couple of centimeters. Oh, low blow, shots fired. Okay. Climb this. That was stupid. I'm sorry. He climbs a sycamore tree. Why? Because he's so... Yeah, because it's higher. That's, thanks, Victor. Because he's the scientific folk are in the room. There's something about him that's intrigued by this man, Jesus. And I asked Jessica this morning because I wasn't paying attention last week. But I said, what was it about that encounter that caused Zacchaeus to go back and pay everyone that he had robbed? I said, did something happen at the dinner table? Was there something Jesus said to him that propelled him in a different direction? And she said, no. Jesus said, I'm going to meet you at your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus wanted to, he wanted to usher Jesus into his house. And he knew he needed to sort out and clean up some things before he could invite the king of kings into his home. I felt that was special. Because while I don't think Jesus expected that of Zacchaeus, he would have met him regardless of his stuff. There's something that happens when you invite him in. You see, when you step forward and you say, Lord, come in, even if it's this deep into your life, there's something that starts to change. Because every knee will bow. There's power in the name of Jesus. Everything in heaven and earth has to succumb and subdue to the name of Jesus. It will bow down to the name of Jesus. And this passage that we're going to go through in John 8 is no different. When we encounter Jesus, he deals with our hearts. You're going to see this in every single encounter. He doesn't care as much about the symptom or the problem or the situation, and he does deeply care. Trust me, he does care about your situation. But he's not the type of surface-level God that's just going to fix your situation and hope that you don't get yourself into the same situation again. Because most of the time, we're our own worst enemies. What he's more interested in is the heart how we step into a situation, how we perceive a certain situation, how we perceive our circumstance. Because I can tell you now, for someone that's in a difficult situation, that looks at it through the, the lens of faith, they don't look at it hopelessly. Listen to what I'm saying. Someone that looks at a dire situation through the lens of faith is not hopeless. I'll let that just rest with you for a moment. When we encounter Jesus, he deals with our hearts. While he cares deeply about your situation or the symptoms of your surrounding issue, he goes after the condition of your heart. He wants to know why you're fearful. He cares more about why you carry anxiety in a particular area. Why you cannot love. Why you cannot allow him to love you. Why you can't be generous with all he's given you. And I could make a long list of things. Those are the things that he cares about the most. There is nothing average about Jesus, nothing. But the invite to welcome him in and to experience him is the same for every single person. And the challenge to us today, I think, is to let him into our lives. Even if you're, you can't be that vulnerable, if you feel you don't know how to do that this morning, you just say, Lord, this is all I have. Come and, come and permeate this area of my life, Lord. I want to, give, I want to open this section to you. Let, watch him work in your life. But there is something about inviting him in. There is something about being vulnerable in front of Jesus that allows him to do what only he can do.
Because it's true that the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the time, with their hardened hearts, came to Jesus and most of the time just left frustrated, angry, upset, and they eventually crucified him. But those that met him with an open heart, desperate for an encounter with him, desperate to experience him, whether they knew of him or didn't know anything about him, he always met them in a special way. Before we read that scripture, I want to just read this passage. Well, not a passage. I wrote this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to one name. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to one name. That's scriptural. Jesus. 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 The name above all names, above every situation. The sheer utterance of that name causes hell to tremble. Everything in your life and in this world will bow to that name. That is out of the Bible. That name has power to set you free today. A cross couldn't keep him. A tomb couldn't hold him. Death had no grip on him. In fact, he rose again, seated at the right hand of, the, of God himself, and now advocates for us. John 1 verse 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Come on. Any amens here? So we have this advocate. We have Jesus in the corner of the ring. But we like to fight the battle on our own and just get beaten instead of just tapping him in. I want that to rest with some of you today. Because I think sometimes we go it alone most of the time. And I feel he's saying to some of you this morning, just like, let me, let me take it. Tap me in. Come on. Why are you caught up in your stuff? Why are you carrying it? I never designed you to carry it. My intent for you is not to be persecuted every day of your life. And if you are, he's going to be glorified in it. Anyway, okay, let's get onto the scripture. I just feel the Holy Spirit's in the room this morning, and I feel like he wants to crack open some things, shake off some things. Is that okay? Okay, so let's do this. John 8. For the Christians in the room with the Bible, I'm going to read it this morning. Yay, thanks, precious. Okay, here we go. John 8. Verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. He did this regularly. He was a teacher. He taught the scriptures. Most of the time they were absolutely amazed. So it doesn't surprise us that there was a large crowd of people gathering to listen to him teach. Pretty day-to-day business as usual. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. How humiliating. And Jesus, and said to Jesus, so they throw this woman, and at her expense, they throw this woman down, and at her expense, they look Jesus in the eyes, and they say, teacher, this woman, finger pointing, love it, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, in the law of Moses. Does that sound like religion? Okay, 
In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Jesus, question mark, unquote. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have the basis for accusing him. You see, they were looking around every corner to accuse Jesus so that they could send him to the cross, to which they eventually succeed. But Je- and that in itself is a funny story because they had no idea that the persecution of Jesus was going to scale the church even bigger than they could imagine. Amen. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, verse 7. You know, there was no iPads at the time. And, you know. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, at this, those who heard... So they heard what he had said, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? To which she responds, no one, sir. Although I imagine way more emotionally. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is an interesting passage because you see Jesus caught between religion and a woman that had committed something, something horrendous, something which she should have been put to death for. And he knew that Jesus was not oblivious to the law. We forget that sometimes. Jesus was not oblivious to the law. He knew exactly what they were coming to do. They knew that he was, they were trying to trip him up. And he knew by the law what she deserved. Jesus tells us earlier in John, he says he didn't come to abolish the law. How interesting is this? He didn't come to abolish the law. So Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't nullify what was supposed to happen to her that day. But it says that he came to fulfill it. And what you see here is that scripture working itself out so perfectly. Because when it talks about him coming to fulfill the law, it talks about him bringing this grace to this situation. You see, Jesus doesn't argue with the teachers. He doesn't enter into debate with them. In fact, the only time he ever addresses them, he says, he is without sin cast the first stone. He also doesn't deal with the woman until right at the end of the passage, funnily enough. You'd think that in this situation, knowing Jesus... The woman would be the subject of the entire passage, but she's not. In fact, she's sitting there, uh, probably crying, probably knowing that regardless of how this turns out, she's going to be punished. And she knows that death is what's expected for her situation. Jesus doesn't deal with her. Jesus does something very, very strange. He stoops down and he starts to draw in the sand. And it says as he starts to draw in the sand, they keep questioning him. They keep throwing these, these questions. They keep trying to trick him up. They keep trying to trap him until he straightens up and he says to them, he is without sin, cast the first stone. This is a very interesting passage. So let's look at the two groups of people that Jesus encounters that day. He encounters the teachers of the law. 
for probably 70% of this passage, he's dealing with religion. You know what I'm saying? He's dealing with the legalism and the religion in the lives of the Pharisees. Right? He didn't condone what this woman had done. He didn't abolish the law and say, well, your law doesn't apply to her. He never said that once. But Jesus deals with the religion and the legalism outright. And he does it in a simple way. He starts to write in the sand. Now, <laughs> theologians speculate as to what was actually happening in the sand. Some people say he drew a line. Some people say he was writing the law. Some people say he was writing their names. Nobody really knows. I don't think it's overly important, honestly, for this passage. I do, however, have a theory. Because there is a scripture lower down in that passage that says they began to leave one by one, the older first and then the younger, until no one was left in the room. Now, you need to realize as well is that there were people there listening to Jesus teach before the Pharisees and the religious rulers came in. So there was an auditorium. There was a room full of people. This is not one woman and a group of five Pharisees. This is everyone right there. If you've watched Grey's Anatomy ever, it's like that surgery room where everyone stands at that glass panel and like watches Meredith Grey doing her thing. It's the same sort of situation. I've never watched it, but Jessica's watched it seven times. <laughs> All 13 seasons. How many? 19 seasons. Oh, my goodness gracious. Think of all the time the Holy Spirit could have ministered to her in that time. Let's pick on Jessica Day. So these people come in and they're trying to accuse Jesus. Here's my theory. Here's my theory. He starts to write down the law. I believe in my heart, this is not scriptural, in my heart, I believe he started to write out the law. You see, because there's a couple of things that are wrong with that situation. For one, if a woman was brought in front of them in adultery, where's the man that she was with? Because by law, there should have been two parties to adultery, right? So where were they? Jesus knows the law. He came to fulfill it, right? So by fulfilling it, he needed to know it so that he could show them the error of the law, its flaws, because only grace could set people free. So my view, and I'm going to stick with this till the day I die, is that he started to write out the laws. And as he did, people started to identify with what he was writing. And the oldest left first. My belief system is that because the oldest were the most mature in the law. So they were the first to identify what had been wrong in their lives. And that's why he looks at them and says, he is without sin, cast the first stone. You see, because in that situation, no one was blameless. Everyone had sin in their lives. And if he was going to take on that woman, he should have taken on all of them. So Jesus, without entering into conflict without trying to debate, without trying to protect the law, starts to doodle in the sand, and people leave one by one. That day, he neither, that way, by using that exact framework, he neither denied the law or condoned the act of adultery. How difficult must that have been for Jesus? Knowing that he, he can't condone. If he had condoned adultery... 
that would have been a completely different setting that we're sitting in today. What a tough situation to be in. This is our Savior. This is the one that you go, oh my gosh, I can't speak to him because he doesn't understand our situation. He's the most intelligent God you'll ever... Well, he's the only God. <laughs> he, he knows you backwards. He knows your situation. The Word of God says he's been tempted in every possible way. He knows you. So why don't we let him in? Jesus wants to deal with the accuser in your life. I'm going to say that again. Jesus wants to deal with the accuser in your life. All of us are in situations like this, where we've got the enemy accusing us. You're hopeless. You're worthless. You're not smart enough. You shouldn't have this job. I can, I can rattle off a ton of things. You're not a good husband. You're not a good provider. Hey? That's the accuser in your life. It's the enemy. Because we've been given an advocate. We've been given a protector. We've been given a comforter. We've been given a helper in the Holy Spirit. So when he says you're useless, he says, no. You are the righteousness of Christ. You are the apple of my eye. You are a whole. You are restored. You are loved. You are everything I designed for you to be. You are exactly where I want you to be right now. But let me tell you what, I have so much more for you. So much more if you let me in right now. If you give me a little bit more of you, watch what I can do with it. Watch where I can take you. Sometimes we're so focused on the acts of what we're doing. Sometimes, like in this passage, we're so focused on the act of adultery. Jesus wasn't. He was focused on the heart of the religious rulers, and he was focused on the heart of that woman. Can you just put yourself into her position for a second? If you've ever watched T.D. Jakes, I don't know if you know this. T.D. Jakes was actually, he studied film. Where's Franklin? He's not here today. Oh, Carol. Oh, yes, Carol. Sorry, I should have known this out of the 600 questions about you on Friday evening. T.D. Jakes says, when he reads the scriptures, he looks at it through a camera. He looks at it through every single person in that setting. Imagine this woman knowing the law. There were 600-odd laws at that time. They would have been very clear as to what would have been grounds for death and stoning, right? I don't know about you, but if they stoned in my society, I'd make sure I knew what was grounds for stoning, right? How bad could her situation have been? How, how unloved could she have felt? that she was willing to risk her entire life to have one moment of intimacy with a man. Think about that for a second. And then be Jesus. When the accuser says, look at how sinful you are. Look at how disgusting you are. Look at the filth. Look at the rubbish in your life. Jesus goes, man, she's broken. Sorry. She's hurting. She's a real person. Jess always laughs at me. I get so overcome when I talk about the love of Jesus. But can you imagine, even through this entire exchange, she's sitting there going, regardless of how this ends, regardless of how the rabbi and the religious rulers conclude this debate, I'm dying today. 
Think about that, what they would have been like. She calls Jesus, sir. So I don't know if she knew who he was. I don't know if she thought or just assumed he would take compassion on her. Compassion on her. I don't know if she thought he was above the law, because he certainly wasn't. This is Jesus. This is our advocate. This is our savior. There is no situation that is too big for him. There is nothing you cannot overcome in this lifetime with him on your side. And he so desperately wants relationship with you. Like deep relationship stuff. I wrote this down this morning. I felt this was a word for somebody. There's a challenge in this passage. There's a call to take your focus off the accuser in your life and focus on your redeemer. There is a call, there is a challenge to you this morning to take your focus off of the accuser in your life and focus on your redeemer. Listen to the voices that are in your head. If it's not building you, if it's not propelling you into a direction that's going to build you up as a person, that's going to strengthen you in faith, it's not God. Father, I just pray discernment over every heart. Father, as you're starting to stir in our hearts and you're starting to surface things, Lord, I just pray for discernment to know what's of you and what's not of you this morning. I ask for every thought to just come into obedience with your word this morning. I pray for people to be set free in this place because of the power of your word. Amen. So the woman is still standing there expecting her punishment. Jesus deals with the religious rulers at the time and they start to leave one by one until there's nobody left in the room. Without saying almost anything, Jesus challenges and propels every single person in that auditorium that day to go think about their lives, to go realize that they need grace in their lives until only the woman remains, a woman that deserved to die. And he says to, to her, where are they? Where is the accuser now? Where is the very people, where's the very force that wanted to destroy you? Where's the very folk that were finger pointing at you? Where are the people that told you that you were no good? She says, nowhere. You see, when you get in front of Jesus, nothing else matters. The world can have its perception on you. The enemy can tell you all that he feels about you. But man, when you're just empowered and you understand who your Savior is, there's like this confidence. And I know that when I mess up as a husband or as a dad or at work and I fail my colleagues and all the rest. It's not who I am. It's not who I am. There's something inside of me that says, this is who you are. I love you, regardless of when you slip up. And you know, in my life, there's certain things that he's taken me through. He's even changed my, my prayer life to him. Where I've messed up as a husband, most of the time I used to do the finger pointing and say, well, it's because she's like this. It's probably the fact. But he started to change me on the inside. Listen to what I'm saying. 
because I realized that I kept getting into the same situation and I kept finger pointing, I kept accusing. And he started to say this, and he started to teach me to say, Don, Lord, how do I be a better husband? How do I change so that this situation never happens again? And you know what he started to do? And I've done this in my workplace. I've done this in my private life. He started to give me a completely new lens for how I saw my wife, how I saw conflict. And he started to to minister this exact word to me, to deal with things the way he would deal with things, to see situations the way he sees situations. And the more I started to ask ask him to say, how do I love my child better when he acts out? How is it that I can be a better provider? How is it that I can be a better boss to my colleagues? How is it that when people meet me day to day in the office, that they can feel valued, that they have purpose, that they're not just a number on a balance sheet? And he starts to show me ways. This is exactly who he is. And Jesus is dealing with this woman And the accusers disappear. And it's just her and him face to face. And I can imagine in that moment for her, when he says, where are they now? And she says, nowhere, sir. No one is here, sir. I imagine she expected the law from his perspective to run its course. This man's going to sentence me today. This rabbi with smirch. I think is the Hebrew word, with power and authority, is going to sentence me today because she knew the law. Except he turns around and he says, well, then nor do I condemn you. Tells us in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the gospel right there. This passage in John 8 is a pure gospel story. He exercised grace towards this woman in such a beautiful way. But there was an instruction and an expectation placed on her that day, and that was to leave your life of sin. You see, when you have an encounter with Jesus, I don't believe he's in the business of just solving all our problems. Sometimes we treat him like that's what he's there for. That's a very consumer-based Christian. But when you look at the demon-possessed man that we spoke about two weeks ago, or you look at the encounter with Zacchaeus, or you look at the encounter with this woman, something changed radically. When the demon-possessed man wanted to just be with Jesus, he said, no, go and tell them of what I've done for you. And he goes to minister the gospel to 10 cities. When Jesus meets with Zacchaeus, something changes, and he starts to pay back the money to the people that he robbed from. And like I said last week, he was the chief tax collector. He was the boss that must have had influence on the taxation system at the time. It must have shook the privatized taxation system in the Roman Empire at the time. This woman, imagine being dragged into the temple, being caught in adultery, leaving there, being pardoned in a sense, And having to walk back into your community. Imagine what that must have been like. Everybody in the town would have known. Everybody. You see, when you encounter Jesus, there's some deposits that he leaves. 
And I imagine she left that place going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But I've met a man that saved me today. And like all of us, I met a man that stood in the gap for me when I should have been hanging on a cross. He took my place. And I don't know how I'll face tomorrow. I don't know how I'll get through my situation. But like that woman, she picked up her head and she walked back out into the community. We don't know what happened to her that day. But I know my God. And he's not the type that's going to fix your situation today and feed you to the wolves tomorrow. That's not the business that he's in. Jesus wants to walk a road with you today. He wants to know you intimately. He wants you to be open to just be with him. Can we pray? God, you are good. God, you are good. You are so good to me. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, that does things in a completely different way to how the world does things. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you that I have a savior and a redeemer and a helper and a comforter, and an advocate that is seated at the right hand of the Father, that cares about me, that wants to see me grow from strength to strength, that wants to be glorified through me. Because it's all for your glory, Lord. We don't know what happened that day to that woman. Father, but I know that you would have been glorified regardless. Father, may you receive all the glory this morning. I just feel that as we spoke gospel, as we preach gospel, as we preach the love of Jesus Christ, as we talk about his goodness and his grace, I feel like I feel like his holy spirit does something that as we just declare his name and his goodness and his majesty that even the words coming out of my mouth don't really matter but he's doing something in the hearts of everyone right here today And Father I'm up here and I don't even know how to pray but I ask, Lord, that whatever you've started this morning, that you, you be faithful to complete. I feel like you're cracking open hearts. I feel like you're bringing down strongholds. I feel like you're bringing down cold hearts this morning. I feel like you're knocking for some people that have shut you out for so long, are starting to open, starting to ask, who's there? Father, I just thank you for the gentleness that you deal with us, the, the delicacy of how you deal with us. 
I look at the situation, Father, that would have put you, Jesus, in such a tough position. But you're just so confident. You know every situation. You know every heart. You know every mind. You have the power to take every thought captive. You have the power to change any situation. Father, I ask that you move in our lives. That you silence the accuser in our lives. Father, that you shut out the noise of the accuser. And may you tune us in to your frequency. The frequency of the Holy Spirit. To hear what you're saying to us. Because your plans are to prosper, prosper us, not to harm us. To give us a hope and a future. 